SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Coming to you from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South. His name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC and follow him at CJ O'Gara. And I'm afraid it's a blue Christmas for me already. Connor was alongside me in studio a week ago. Not the case now. He's back in Mont's basement in Orlando, but let's welcome him nonetheless. Hey, you know, it's good to be back here in my home base. I feel a little bit more comfortable with my surroundings. I'm I'm an indoor cat, you know. I was I was outside last week and uh, glad to be back inside, just kind of comfortable in my own element. Yeah, the intimidation factor I can exude can be can be pretty strong. I understand that. The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. While the regular season is sadly in the rearview mirror, your holiday season is chock full of bowl games. Nine of the fourteen teams in the SEC are going bowling. Missouri plays Texas, Texas A&M plays Wake Forest, Kentucky gets Northwestern, Mississippi State gets Louisville, South Carolina and Michigan, Auburn and UCF, LSU gets Notre Dame, and of course, Georgia and Alabama are in the college football playoff. The Bulldogs are going to the Rose Bowl to face Oklahoma, and then the Crimson Tide will once again take on Clemson in the Sugar Bowl. We've been working with Ticket City for a long time. They are the experts in the business, having served over a million and a half customers. They've been the place to go for almost three decades. Best of all, right now, Ticket City is offering $20 off for all of our Saturday Down South readers and listeners. All you have to do is go to TicketCity.com, enter the discount code SDS20 at checkout, you're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. Again, TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to a game, visit Ticket City today. All right, Connor, once again, we don't have any actual football to talk about, but we are, we're really trudging some, some new soil here. This is going to be the early signing period. It begins Wednesday. The window opens up for three days, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It is a bold new world for how college football is going to be formed in the recruiting process. So I'm curious, just your, just your outside-the-box original take on what you think might happen these next couple of days. Well, I think what's going to happen is I think a lot of people are going to be really upset with it, just in case they already aren't like upset with it enough. I think a lot of media members especially have complained about just the, the timing of this and with bowls going on. It just kind of crams everything. But uh, for me, I, I think that this is going to have some positives and it's going to have some negatives. I think we're going to look back on this like we do any first thing that, that comes up as a trial run, and that's what this has to be treated as. It's not going to be something that's perfect. The organization of it is not going to be great. We still didn't have a great idea of what teams were actually holding signing day press conferences, and I think they were still trying to, trying to decide all of that because this is brand-new territory. This is a three-day event but you kind of get the feeling that most kids are going to want to sign on that Wednesday. So can you really have a press conference on Wednesday talking about the whole recruiting class? You just don't know. And you don't know, to even broaden that out even more, how many kids overall are going to sign in this three-day window. We tend to think that at the big programs, the majority of the classes are going to be filled. But 
it's recruiting, and things can change on a moment's notice, and we have no idea how this thing is going to play out. I think everybody, coaches, players, fans, are just sort of in wait-and-see mode with this whole thing. And I'm, I'm interested because I think that the positives are there, and we will have some positives in that kids are able to get this thing out of the way, and they don't necessarily have to deal with coaches having another month to try and convince them of a decision that they've been confident in for a long time. And I'm all about that because I think the early enrollees will benefit from this. But there are obviously going to be some negatives, and I think many will be quick to point those out. Yeah, here's what we know. It's that we don't know what we don't know yet. This is brand new territory for college football. I don't think coaches truly know how to handle it. I don't think the recruits truly know how to handle it. As you suggest, the media doesn't really know how to handle it. But here's another thing I know. No one really cares how this affects the media. Uh, National Signing Day, just from a coverage perspective, can be a nightmare. That first Wednesday in February is incredibly difficult, incredibly taxing. A lot of work goes to that day. That is the day in college football, especially if you work for some of these recruiting services out there, Rivals and Scout and 247 and the like. That is the day. That's Christmas all wrapped up into one. And now it sort of feels like we have two signing days. And is the first one going to be watered down? Is the second one not going to be as significant? We don't really know yet. Who's going to have a signing class by Friday that's already 80% full and is happy about it? Who's going to have a signing class that's only 30% full and going to be freaking out? I really don't know. But one thing we do need to talk about is the timing of all this. I do find it very curious why they opened up this three-day window just a couple days ahead of Christmas. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Actual National Signing Day is only about six weeks down the road, so this doesn't seem like a big window from the pre-signing day to the post-signing day, if you will. So many of these kids are being recruited since they were 14 and 15 years old. If this was my idea, if I had hashed this thing, I would have had National Signing Day, the early period that is, before school even begins in the fall, why not have it like August 1st or something like that before kids even begin their senior year of high school? If you have a kid who is a lockdown five-star recruit, he's going to Alabama. That's all there is to it. Why make him wait another four months? Why make him endure having all the phone calls and all the questions and all the recruitniks hounding this guy during his senior season? If he knows where he's going, go ahead and sign in August, and that's it. It's binding. That's where he's going. So I see the need for the early signing period. I think there's going to be positives and negatives. There's probably going to be some questions and some problems that come out of this thing that we didn't anticipate because it hasn't happened yet. But if you're going to have it early, have it early. Have it a couple of months early. I don't understand having it a couple of weeks early. Here's, here's the problem with that, though. And, and while you bring up some good points about if you're a kid who wants to go to Alabama, just get it over with before the season starts. No problem with that. Five of the 14 SEC programs have new coaches. And I know we say constantly commit to a school, don't commit to a coach. But the reality is kids commit to coaches. And if those coaches are being are, are, are brand spanking new and it's a completely different system and it's not what they signed up for when they signed their letter of intent back in August, that, that's a binding document. And that says, hey, I am signed to go to this place. Now, you would have to go through some red tape if you want to put a, a policy in place where kids are able to drop their, you know, their, their, their signed letters of intent if a coach changes and, and all that, but then you're just pretty much back in the same scenario, and that's an, uh, a new mess that whatever new coach that takes over has to deal with. So while there are a lot of 
questions about the timing of this. I get it from the standpoint of, okay, you can't necessarily have it right after the season ends, that first week of December. Coaches are being hired and fired left and right. Uh, you need to give them some sort of time to be able to get a recruiting class together, to get a staff together, to go out and actually recruit. And you can't have it during the busiest bowl week of the season. I get all that stuff. You want to get this in before the early the early enrollees can get on campus just to, to get that, that ball rolling. I, I get all that. There's no perfect way to do this. I think that's that's the conclusion that we're going to come to at the end of this thing is realizing that this thing is not maybe the best way to do it, but I don't know if there is a definitive best way to do it because given the way early enrollees have increased over the years, having signing day in February doesn't make much sense either. Yeah, I am president. I am the card-carrying president of the sign with the school club, not sign with the coach club. I, I know that that falls on deaf ears these days. And, of course, the coach you sign for has a lot to do with it. You know, if, if this guy runs the system you think you can flourish in, of course you want to go play for him, which is why some of these recruits will follow a coach who gets fired at one place and hired somewhere else. Or he was a coordinator at one place and then gets a chance to be a head coach. I absolutely understand that. But I don't think it would be that difficult to have that writer in there on these national letters of intent. Yes, they are binding documents, but it wouldn't be that difficult to have an amendment on there saying, look, if you sign with Oregon, but Willie Taggart leaves – Yes, you can go ahead and jump out of your NLI and you can open yourself up and potentially go to another school. I don't think you would have anybody saying NCAA or any other part of this level here saying that that would be incorrect. I think that would be fine. Now, if a kid just loves the running backs coach or he really loves the D.C. and he was the most important guy in his recruiting process, you know what? Those guys leave all the time and you have to sort of live with that. But if a head coach is fired, if a head coach leaves to go somewhere else, I wouldn't be I'd be perfectly fine letting the kid out of that NLI and letting him shop himself around again. I just don't understand why there's only six weeks between the early signing period and actual national uh, signing day, because part of the reason to have the early one in the first place was to alleviate some of the recruiting pressure on these young men. Their their minds are made up. Their decisions have been made. So let's put pen to paper and get it over with. But they're still having to deal with all this their entire senior year of high school. I would like it just to get it over with. Make it September 1st. Make it you know, make it August 1st, like I said before. Just get it over with. I'm signed. I'm sealed. I'm almost delivered. Go ahead and get it over with. But, again, I'm not in charge of these things. And this is going to be the wild, wild west. I don't think anybody knows what to anticipate. If you tell me that Alabama's recruiting class as of Friday is 80% full with four- and five-star kids, I believe you. If you told me they only got seven kids to sign in the dotted line, I would believe that too. I have no idea what to anticipate, and anybody who thinks they have an idea, I think they're kidding themselves. Yeah, and I think part of it too is they want to get kids. Schools want to be able to have kids on campus for those official visits their senior years. Um, it's a little some some programs don't offer those juniors all the time and have them on campus for those unofficial visits. So the thinking is you can have them. Uh, in season on campus for an official visit. I mean, how many recruits over the years have gone to Death Valley or they've gone to the Iron Bowl and they've thought to themselves, oh my gosh, this is what I need to play in. I'm going to go to to one of these schools because this is the kind of atmosphere that I want to be a part of. And that official visit makes a big difference. And it's a little bit different as opposed to signing early and, and seeing the campus over the summer when there's not really kids on there. And it, it's just 
the whole thing has a lot of moving parts to it, and I think a lot of fans maybe don't even necessarily take those all into consideration. But you know, when it comes back to it, this is a decision about where you're going to spend the next four years of your life. And for kids who have 55 offers or whatever, that's not easy. And so what the NCAA is trying to do is trying to make it seem like it's all about the kids' decision and it's all it's, it's trying to help them. But what I worry is going to come of this is that kids are going to get forced into making a decision a little bit too early because these coaches, in their perfect world, they're going to have 90% of their classes locked up on you know by, by Wednesday or by Friday, and it's going to make their recruiting job that much easier until National Signing Day because they know exactly what they need to go out and get. So I think that I worry that some kids are going to be pressured into making these big decisions, um, and, and maybe they're not even going to necessarily be ready. And so having both of these signing days, yes, while you'd like to say the, the mature student-athlete is going to look at this um, critically and say, okay, I need that, that extra six weeks, it's a little bit tougher if Nick Saban or Urban Meyer is saying, hey, we got to know or else we're going to pull an offer from you. I worry about those type of stories coming out with all this. Yeah, there's one thing that you mentioned I want to fight back on a little bit, and that is the official visit. And if you pay attention to people who really understand the recruiting business, when you talk to the Tom Luganbills and the like that are out there who have been doing this professionally for a lot longer than I have and are much closer to it than I am, they'll tell you that the official visit isn't nearly as important as it used to be. And a lot of that is because the proliferation of camps and seven-on-seven tournaments and things like that You know, 20 years ago when a kid went and visited Gainesville to check out the campus and the swamp and Ben Hill Griffin Stadium and where might he live and things to do socially, chances are that was the first time he had seen that campus before. That's not always the case. Chances are these kids have been there as a high school sophomore, as a high school junior going for going for camps and junior days and things like that. It's not that uncommon for kids in Florida to take West Coast trips and go see what USC is like and go see what Washington is like. It's not that uncommon. These things happen, and it didn't really happen a generation ago. So the the value of the official visit isn't what it once was. It's not unusual for a kid to commit or even sign with a school that he hasn't even stepped foot on the campus yet. So I don't think the official visit matters as much as it did. I know that those are things that that's a big part of the fall and kids coming to a big game and getting a chance to see the environment, especially if it's a rivalry game like the Iron Bowl you mentioned. Of course, that can be a major, major selling point. But I don't think the official visit matters as much as it used to simply because these kids have so much more information than, than they did before. And they visit a lot more places unofficially and for camps and other things than they ever did. So I don't know how much that truly matters. I'm still advocating for this early signing period to actually be early. That's true. And at the same time, while I don't necessarily think you're right, and that kids do go on a lot more unofficial visits, and maybe it doesn't mean as much to them, but I think it still means a lot for for the coaches to have them on those official visits for a game because I feel like that's a big selling point for them, they feel. So I I think that they would want to uh, advocate, some at least would want to advocate for having uh, the ability to to still have that available. And like you said, when you have multiple signing days, you know, the kids who want to go out and do this and they they, they have their mind made up, you know, they can go ahead and sign. But I, I just still come back to the same idea that, the earliest signing day is going to force coaches who, let's be honest, you know, they, they have all the pull in these, in these scenarios, and they can, 
they can, you know, pursue a kid till the very end, or they can decide, okay, you don't even have a scholarship offer available anymore after I take over, and we see stories of that coming out. So I worry that coaches are going to be a little bit too pushy with this, and the, the earlier we move signing day up, the more kids are going to be forced into making these decisions that they're not ready to make yet. So I'm curious where these stories are going to pop up because I think it's inevitable at this point, and this is something that's going to – and, of course, people are then going to criticize this this signing day and say, what a sham, that this never would have happened if this we had just left it in February and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm here for, for all the negativity, but I do think that there are some positives. I don't think it's completely one-sided in this whole deal. So let's speculate a little bit. Let's say that the early signing period three-day window closes on Friday, whatever time it happens to be. And let's just talk about Alabama because they're rolling off six or seven straight number one recruiting classes. Let's say that Nick Saban already has a class of 18 guys. He already has 18 NLIs in hand. And I think his class has to be a little smaller this year. Let's say he has 23 scholarships available. 18 of them are signed. What happens with those other five spots? What happens these next six weeks? Does Saban go elephant hunting and say, hey, I've only got five offers left. I've only got five spots open. I'm going to try to find the five best players in America and convince them who did not sign early and are still out there waiting until February. Or is he going to be thinking, you know what? I really could use another corner in this class. I really could use another linebacker in this class. I guess I have to offer this three-star kid that originally I wasn't thinking, but you know what? I, I need I need somebody on the depth chart here. Where do you think this is going to shape out in terms of after we figure out how many guys have signed, now it's just simple arithmetic. Now I have so many spots left. What do you do with those spots? Well, I think if you're a program like Alabama, it's a little bit different where you're, your elephant hunting is you can also pick and choose at the same time. You can say, okay, we need this cornerback here. We need to add. I wanted to be able to add one more running back, one more receiver in this class, and chances are, the kids who are unsigned who have an offer from Alabama are the big, uh, you know, the top prospects that that note that everybody else is is pushing for. So I think it's a little bit different if you're if you're in Alabama. If you're a program like I don't know, let's say a program like Minnesota, take for example, because Minnesota got a lot of criticism for for. And I know SEC people. <laughs> Have, have don't necessarily know about you know the, the PJ Flex start, but he got a lot of criticism in the Big Ten for throwing out a ton of offers. I mean, off, offering kids left and right, and all these kids who are sitting there that had Minnesota offers, and PJ Flex is he's got maybe he's got 27 kids signed, in by by Friday, and how many scholarships does he really have left? And all these kids are left sitting there like, I've got a scholarship offer from Minnesota and. I think he's got maybe two spots left. Like, what are those kids going to do? I mean, so it's going to be interesting to see because it's a little bit of give and take, and I think coaches are going to uh, have to decide based on what happens this week, all right, am I really going to narrow my focus here and lock in on these five or six kids and hope that they that two of them are going to fill these spots? I don't know. It's, it's going to be different for them, too, because it's, it's, it's going to be a smaller sample size and when you have only X amount of spots available to fill in six weeks or whatever, uh, it's going to change your whole recruitment process. And some kids are definitely going to get burned by this because they have outstanding offers, but maybe they're not as, as highly coveted as the, 
you know, as four kids ahead of them who also have scholarship offers from the same school. So that's my long-winded way of saying I, I think that ultimately this is going to be picking and choosing for coaches and there are going to be a lot of hurt feelings that are going to come out from all this. So let's flip the script here. Let's say you're Kentucky. Let's say you're Coach Stoops. And, yeah, you got a nice thing going in the SEC East right now, but you're still Kentucky historically. And let's say that Coach Stoops only gets seven or eight signatures. You know what? His class is – he's got 26 scholarships to give out, and he can only get seven or eight kids to commit right then and there. Hey, I'm going to Big Blue Nation. What is the next six weeks going to look like for him? Is this an opportunity to go to some kids that have been targeted by, say, in Alabama but haven't signed yet for whatever reason? Is this freak-out time when you got to start going to the JUCO ranks and saying, I, I need bodies, I need some kids who can step on campus and maybe contribute right away? I, I'm very curious how all this is going to work out. I have no idea how this is going to work out. But if you're not one of the major players like Alabama, if you're not on speed dial with the four- and five-star kids across America, if you're a school like Kentucky and you get eight signatures this week, what do you do until National Signing Day that first Wednesday in February? And in Kentucky's defense, um, they actually have 20 commitments right now, which is pretty impressive. Bad example, bad example. Kentucky's got a top 25 class, so that's that's pretty impressive. I actually didn't, I, to be honest, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention this year to Kentucky recruiting, but that's uh, that's not too bad. So, yeah, okay, but I understand what you're saying in that if, if you're left with all of a sudden, okay, these kids did not sign, and I have all these kids who have offers, but none of them wanted to sign in this early period, what am I left to do? Am I basically like trying to start over from scratch? This is going to be a debate that I think a lot of coaches are going to have, and I worry that new coaches are really going to have to deal with this. All the new coaches in the SEC, and maybe some who see a guy like Joe Moorhead and they don't have that relationship with him, are, are they going to decide, you know what, I just need another six weeks to, to go through this recruitment process. Even though I've been committed to Mississippi State for months, I just want to make sure that this is the right thing. Are new coaches like that going to be looking at and saying, okay, we've got 20 kids verbally committed, but only 10 are going to sign? Oh, man, what am I going to do if I'm a coach? Are they, are they waffling? I don't know. That's going to be the, the interesting thing is seeing the kids who are verbally committed but who don't want to sign yet. Will they basically be treated like kids who are dropping their recruitment and, and if you're a coach, how do you handle that? That's a whole new element to this thing that we haven't necessarily had to deal with before that's going to be worth monitoring. Yeah, there's actually a, a couple ways this can go. And it's, some can be sort of you got to be sympathetic to the coaches and some you got to be sympathetic to the players. But there's going to be a couple of things that happen here. There's going to be some kid on Wednesday who is an Auburn commitment. And he's been an Auburn commitment since the summer before his senior year of high school. And he's all War Eagle and that's where he's going. But you know what? that paperwork might not show up at his high school because that offer was a really, really soft offer. And you know what? The Tigers are hoping to fill their class of more talented kids before they get to him. So he wants to sign. He wants to get that John Hancock going on Wednesday, but he doesn't have the paperwork from the school. That kid right then and there has learned, you know what? Auburn gave me an offer, but they're really not that serious. Maybe I need to shop myself around. And then the reciprocal of that as well. You might have a kid who's, Says, no question about it, I'm going to South Carolina. Coach Muschamp, here I come. But for one reason or another, he chooses not to sign in the early period. 
What does that tell Coach Muschamp? You know what? This kid is shopping around. He's hoping he gets an offer from Georgia. He's hoping he gets one from Florida. He hopes he gets one from Clemson. He's not as interested in me as I would like. Is that time for Coach Muschamp to move on and assume that, you know what, if I can't get him on December 20th, what makes me think I'm going to get him on February 6th or whatever the day happens to be? So those are things on both sides of the spectrum, both from the player side and the coach's side. We're going to learn a little bit more because of this early signing period, but but it, I don't know how it's all going to shake out, but it's going to be very curious to watch. It will, and the two keys for this, in my opinion, communication and transparency. If we can have that throughout the recruiting process, we're going to hear, because I hate hearing these stories where a kid is gets a scholarship pulled because a new coach steps in or, or they just think he's not as talented. And that, that happens all the time. Happens all the time. And it doesn't even have to be a new coach. You know what? He, he might have an offer from X school, but by the time he says yes, they've already got a class full and the scholarship's not available anymore. Happens all the time. It does. And, it, you know, we're going to hear more stories about, about this. And I, I just hope that if you're a recruit, if you're a coach, just just communicate and be transparent and say, hey, you know, we're, we're signing this day or – we're hoping to get you locked down on December 20th. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, this is this is new territory for all parties involved, and there is going to be some, some trial and error, but things are a lot easier if you just communicate through them and if coaches can be as transparent as possible. I think that's going to make this process go a little bit smoother on all fronts if we can just have those two things. That's true, but I will say this. The game of poker has been changed dramatically because this early signing period is forcing the players to show their cards and it's sort of show, forcing the, uh, the coaches to show their cards as well. Is this offer legit? Is this guy's commitment legit? And, and I'm very cynical when it comes to the commitment thing. Every time it shows up in my Twitter feed that such and such prospect has committed to so-and-so school, I never take them that seriously because, I mean, how many of these commitments actually hold true and make it to National Signing Day? It seems like 50% of them eventually flip somewhere eventually. Don't tell me about some corner for the class of 2020 that says, no question, I'm going to Texas A&M. I mean, come on. You don't even have your driver's license yet. Don't tell me where you're going to college in two and a half years. That doesn't matter much to me. But again, in terms of the poker game, this has changed dramatically. And I do like the fact that when those things shake out, when you hear that story about this kid thought he had an offer to Florida, as it turns out, they're not going to give him the paperwork. The scholarship isn't really there. At least he still has this six-week window of opportunity to be shopped around, to maybe have some other schools call and say, hey, I guess he's not going to Florida. Let's make another run at this guy. So from that perspective, I could absolutely see some positives. There's some negatives that are going to come out of this, but that is one of the positives, just the speeding up of the poker game, where it's not just one big hand in February, and they need to sort of have to deal with it and realize, you know what, this kid's forced to take a gray shirt, or this kid is forced to go to junior college, and that wasn't when he anticipated when this entire thing started. The negatives of this thing, in my opinion, are going to be those new coaches. And when we talk about the new coaches in the SEC, having essentially five new coaches, six if you want to include Matt Luke shedding the interim tag, you're looking at guys who had a couple weeks to put together their entire staffs and put together a recruiting class because a lot of these kids, as we said earlier, committed to coaches instead of committing to a school. And I'm interested to see who's able to sort of salvage their classes because it's more difficult than ever to come in and and be able to put together a class that's 
you know, top 15 worthy. As of right now, the new, the new coaches in the SEC, the top-ranked class is, is your boy Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M at number 18 nationally. The artist now, formerly known as my boy, by the way. <laughs> your former boy, Jimbo Fisher. Is, is he going to be able to, to hold on to, to all those recruits? Are any of these, these new coaches going to put together a top-20 class? Because, I mean, realistically, if you're competing year in, year out, chances are you're doing it with a top 20 class. I mean, that's, that's the standard. So how big of a disadvantage are these new coaches going to be put at? I mean, a guy, like, a guy like Chad Morris who steps in at Arkansas, and, I mean, that class, it's going to be a, a grind to fill that out. He, he, you know, came on board late, of course. That class is ranked 66 nationally right now, sandwiched between Western Michigan and Western Kentucky. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here with the new coaches and what they have to deal with. He's got 11 verbal commitments, and I get it. I mean, I, I understand why kids are unwilling to say, okay, I was willing to play for Brett Bielema, but I'm not willing to play for Chad Morris because it's, it's a completely different system. So how are these guys going to salvage these classes and make up so much ground in such little time? That's going to be fascinating to see, and I give these these new coaches credit if they're able to – to make a, a big push at the last minute because that is so, so challenging to do to step into a situation like that and, and just put together something that's respectable. Yeah, the fallout of the coaching carousel, it can be absolutely vicious. Even I mean, you talk about Arkansas and Coach Morris, but even for an absolute power out there, and again, yes, I'm going to mention Florida State, my school, but Florida State right now, with the coaching changeover, Jimbo going to A&M, you bring in Willie Taggart. You know, everyone loves this Willie Taggart hire. He's young, he's energetic, he's got this offense that's going to be fun to watch. He knows how to recruit in the state of Florida. He's going to get athletes to that school. Florida State is 51st right now, according to the composite rankings at 247 Sports. 51st, sandwiched in between Pitt and Northwestern. So even if you had this new guy come in who's going to know how to recruit and shake things up and bring a new system, getting that first class can be near impossible. And that's why these rebuilds at programs like in Arkansas that you mentioned can take time and can be difficult. I like the Chad Morris hire. You like the Chad Morris hire. It seems to make more sense as a fit than Coach Bielema ever did as much as we loved covering him in press conferences. I like the hire. I love the ties to the state of Texas. But he's not going to show up day one and get a top 20 class to come to Fayetteville. It's not going to happen. If Florida State is stuck at 51 right now, you're not going to get Arkansas into the top 20 right away. It takes some time to build these things. So the the amount of fallout from the early signing period coupled with the vicious coaching carousel that changed the dates there a little, it's a brave new world. And I don't think anybody truly knows how to navigate it. It's interesting that you look at the new coaches in the SEC and you, you break down the amount of commitments. If you look at nothing else but just the amount of commitments, and Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State is holding on to 20 commitments right now, 20 verbal commitments, we should say. And maybe that's because he's pretty similar to Dan Mullen and they're going to run sort of similar offenses, and that's got a lot to do with it. Um, But a a place like Florida, where you're going to go through a big transition, it's a different type of coach who's stepping in, and you're sitting there with 12 commitments. Uh, You you know, the aforementioned Florida State, Willie Taggart's going to run a different offense than, than Jimbo Fisher, and they're sitting there with nine commitments. Tennessee is sitting there with 12 commitments. I mean, like programs just across the board with all these new coaches that 
the numbers are, are so down, and, and you get why, and you, you totally understand. Even a program like Ole Miss, which is dealing with a different set of circumstances with these recent um, NCAA sanctions that they're going to be facing, you know, they're, they're sitting there right now with 12 commitments. And so many other programs have a bigger advantage. And is that going to, necess- is that going to create a dynamic where in these six weeks between signing days, those, those programs are just going to get everything – all of these these other kids who don't sign in in December, and they're going to be able to, to to maybe pursue them the most because they have more scholarships available, and they can take a little bit, you know, they can take a few more risks, and they can pursue those kids a little bit more heavily. That's going to be something worth watching too, because I I don't think that these these classes are going to be anywhere near filled for these these coaches that are taking over new programs. Yeah, look at the the rankings in the SEC right now. Georgia atop. And making a run at number one class in the country, 18 total commitments. Alabama right behind with 16 total. Again, the Crimson Tide can't sign a huge class like they have in the past, just how the numbers game sort of shakes out. Auburn at number three with 20 commitments. What do those schools have in common? Yes, they're you know blue-blooded programs with every advantage known to mankind, but they have very stable coaching situations, especially Auburn now. The coach Malzahn has that new $7 million per annum deal. But then even a school like LSU, LSU was fourth. You're feeling pretty good about where they are in the coaching situation. South Carolina is five right now. Why? Because the Gamecocks have a nice thing little going right now. Will Muschamp has put his stamp on that program. Texas A&M is at six. That's the first new coaching situation. But you're in the state of Texas. Sumlin was recruiting well. Jimbo is going to recruit well. That makes a little bit of sense. But you got Kentucky at eight ahead of Florida at nine. Coaching, of course, has a huge impact on that. Vanderbilt is at 10 right now. Tennessee is at 12. That doesn't make any sense, but that's the coaching situation. Not that Coach Mason is on the most solid ground right now, but he's certainly in a lot better shape than what Coach Pruitt is inheriting in Knoxville. So yeah, it, the, the ramifications just never seem to stop. They never seem to stop. It all comes down to recruiting. The coaches are the most important thing when it comes to the recruiting. I, I, st- I st- keep coming back to this. I just don't know what's going to happen Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch, but I don't have a great grasp as to what's going to happen. I really don't. Let's hope that we, we get these kids signed uh, on Wednesday. <laughs> and, and, all, and pretty much most of this is, is taken out of consideration later in the week. I think that's going to make – I mean, I know it will make our jobs a little bit easier, but just for understanding how these classes are, are shaping out – I mean, who who doesn't want to see most of these classes signed by Wednesday? I mean, I think we're in agreement that the more that they can get this out of the way in the first day of this three-day signing period, the better. And maybe that will even suggest in the future that this doesn't need to be an early signing period and it could just be an early signing day. And this can just be a one-day thing, and coaches will have a little bit of an easier time doing this. Because let's let's not forget, if they're having Wednesday press conferences and they're talking about you know they're talking about the recruiting classes, and they have a kid who they think is going to sign on Friday. They can't talk about that kid yet. Correct. And that's that's uh, a compliance issue, and you know, it, I, so that that could create an interesting set of circumstances in itself. If coaches are having to talk about certain kids in their class, but they can't talk about other kids, like it, it's just going to be it's going to be weird <laughs> to be talking about this in in December as opposed to February, but. Um, I, I do think that we're going to be able to see some positives gained from this, and I think that hopefully some of the dust will settle in January 
and we can have a clearer idea of where programs are going to be at, um, at least after bowl season. If you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, then you know the South loves football, but you know what the South also loves? Crystal Burgers. That's right, Crystal, home with a classic Crystal Burger. They're an SDS sponsor this year, and they're ready to hook you up for your tailgate. The classic Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way after midnight, it is still just 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. Best of all, Crystal is taking care of our Saturday Down South readers and listeners this fall. Text SDS, the letters SDS, to 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals and a drink. Free crystals, 79-cent crystals. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be treated like the hero that you are. Stop by your local crystal today. All right, Connor, let me pose this question to you. I can't wait to get your answer on this, but okay, we got a general idea of how we think this early signing period is going to work out. But let's just say you're School X. Let, let's not even get specific with, with the program here. School X has 25 scholarships available for the class of 2018. They have, let's just say, 15 commitments on board right now. 15 commitments say they're going to sign and they're going to School X. What happens... After the early signing period, that they have 20. What if they get 20 kids in-house? They have almost the entire class signed already. What does that say about the school? What does that say about the recruits in general and the way they're approaching all this? And on the flip side, what if they only sign 10? What if they think they're going to get 15 signatures through the fax machine, but only 10 show up? What does that say about the school? What does that say about how recruits are handling just having this early signing period for the first time? I think part of that depends on the type of offers that have been thrown out there. If there have been, if you're a school who was maybe accused of throwing out too many offers, then it, and that comes back to bite you, then you got to look at the way that you did that process and think, all right, we got to be a little bit more, a little bit tougher, and realize that we can't just throw out offers left and right uh, before these kids play their senior years. Because if we're sitting there with such limited scholarships and we didn't even necessarily get all the kids that we wanted and we're having to be a little bit more picky, then I think that's the change that needs to be made. And it's not necessarily an indictment on your program. If you get more kids that are signing on this during this early signing period than you thought you were going to, I think that's a good thing. And I think that you're doing something right late in the game and you want to try and emulate that as much as possible. Now, on the flip side, if you're sitting there thinking that you're going to get 15 to 20 kids signed and you end up only with 10 you go back to the drawing board and you say, all right, how did we lose these kids late in the process that we thought were signed, sealed, delivered? What were we not doing leading up to this time to say, okay, we, we feel confident that we could have this kid on board and we could even have him enrolled early in January? I, I think that if you're a program that, that deals with that scenario, you go into January thinking, all right, we've got to just run like crazy to be able to get this class filled, and we're, we're going to take some risks but we're, we're going we're gonna to pour all of our eggs into recruiting, and we're going to spread our net a little bit wider if you're you know, obviously sitting there only with 10 commitments and you need to double your class, essentially. Um, but I think the, the, you need to be able to reevaluate and say, okay, we messed up in this early signing period. We did something wrong if our estimates weren't what they thought they were going to be on either side of the coin with that. Yeah, this is sort of going to be a classic 
bird in hand versus two in the bush situation as well. I mean, how do you handle this if you're a coach? What would you value more? Let's say you really, really need a corner in this class, and you got a three-star kid who's ranked, I don't know, 350th in America. Let's just throw some generic numbers out there. And he'll sign right now, December 20th. He's a part of your class. Bam, he's there. Do you want that kid? Or do you want to roll the dice with a four-star kid? He's ranked 99th in America. And maybe he doesn't have to redshirt, and maybe he's more physically ready to contribute right away, even if it's just on special teams. Do you wait around for that first Wednesday in February hoping you can get that guy? Either you can upgrade from the three-star to the four-star or come up empty. How do you handle that if you're a coach? I don't, I don't roll the dice. I, I take the kid that I offer the scholarship to, that I've been recruiting, that I, I know those recruiting rankings, people take a lot of stock into them, but... If I feel like a, a kid is, is worth a scholarship and I'm not necessarily worried about, oh, he's ranked 350th compared to 99th or whatever, I'm sticking with a kid who's ranked 350th. And if the kid who's ranked 99th wants to come and join my class as well, great. Uh, there are multiple cornerbacks available. Um, it, it, there are multiple cornerback spots that, that are going to be filled in every single class. So why not pursue both of them? But you absolutely need to get the sure thing, in my opinion, and rolling the dice like that, uh, that that's that's a little bit too calculated of a risk for me, and I think you're, you're kind of playing with fire by doing that. So here's another scenario. So, again, let's just throw school X out there. It doesn't matter. They've got an offer out there for such and such four-star running back, but he won't sign early. He says he wants to wait. He wants to hang out and have the big thing at his high school for National Signing Day that first Wednesday in February. Do you pull the offer? I mean, how do you handle that? I mean, if a guy's telling you that he doesn't want to sign in December, he wants to wait to February, does he still want to sign with you? I mean, is that a sign right there that he doesn't want to go to your school if he's committed or not? Do you pull the offer and move on and try to find somebody else? It depends how you feel about the kid, and I think every situation is a little bit differently. If you feel like, okay, I've just got to give this kid a little bit of time, but I still feel like we're going to be able to recruit and we're going to be able to recruit him and bring him on board, then I think it's absolutely worth um, sticking with. And I, I, I'm not a believer at all in pulling scholarships from kids. I, I know that it happens. I know it's an inevitable thing that happens in this sport, but I do not support it 1%. And I, for me, I, I think that it's worth waiting on a kid in that scenario where, okay, you've had interest in him. He's had interest, he's had interest in you. Why not let the thing play out? and be in the same situation that you were in before. If, somebody, if he's somebody that you want and you want it at one point, you should be able to want him in February the same way that you wanted him in December. I know you want to be able to get as much of your class locked down as possible, but for me that kid is, is worth waiting on, and maybe he just needs more time, and coaches are going to need to be able to respect that. All right, we haven't talked about any specific recruits for the class of 2018. You're not one of these wall-to-wall recruitniks, and neither am I. I look at it as a necessary evil for what I do for a living. Covering National Signing Day has never been my favorite thing about the job. But there's one player we have to talk about, talk about in particular, and not because I just wrote a column about him on, on Monday for Saturday Down South. I'm very late for the plug alert here. But it's Justin Fields, who a lot of people think is the number one player in the country. I always reference... The composite rankings for 247 Sports, he's currently number two in the country, but he's a dual-threat quarterback. He's everything you want in the position. He's six foot three, 220 pounds, very good athlete, can make all the throws. Everybody wants this kid. 
He was a Penn State commitment once upon a time, flipped to Georgia, and despite some late runs from the Nittany Lions, Florida State made a play, Florida made a play. It looks like he's going to honor that commitment, his second one as far as I know, and he's going to sign with Georgia Wednesday. And you know what? Good for him. I'm not here to criticize him. And when I wrote the column on Monday, I made sure not to criticize the young man. But I do have to question it. It just seems a little strange to me that at some point it's possible we're going to have a depth chart in Athens with Jake Fromm at the top, Jacob Eason in the middle, and then Justin Fields right after that. You're talking about three of the most highly recruited quarterbacks in the country each of the last three cycles. And we're talking about quarterback here. This isn't safety. This isn't wide receiver. You can only put one on the field at a time. And if one is playing, that means two of them aren't. And even if we assume that Jacob Eason is on the outside looking in and he's an inevitable transfer once this season is over, maybe he goes to hang out with Coach Rick down in Miami since they were close on the recruiting trail once upon a time. Maybe he goes back home. And he goes to UW, and he makes sense to take over for Jake Browning once, you know, eventually. Even if he's not there, Jake Fromm is one of the best freshman quarterbacks we've seen in this conference in a long time. We're assuming he's going to be the guy at least for the next two seasons, even if he's a must-have NFL talent one day. Why is Justin Fields making this decision to go to a place where it sure looks like the top of the depth chart is figured out for a while? Yeah, and that comes back to relationships, I think, and the relationship that he has with with Kirby Smart has obviously been a big part of that. And I won't fault the kid for making a college choice ever. Because of course not. You, you can't because you don't know the circumstances that that each person is going through and what that recruitment process is like and what it, just you know all the emotional factors that go into picking a school. So, uh, but if you're looking at it strictly from a, okay, am I going to play standpoint, you know, if you're the number two recruit in the country, you're thinking, I could play anywhere. And I don't care if a kid like Jake Fromm is having the year that he's having, I feel like I'm going to be able to go in there and play. Now, there's no guarantee that that plays out and that happens. And more times than not with five-star quarterbacks, that actually ends up not working out and they end up leaving. So... The chances, actually, of Jake Fromm and Justin Fields both finishing their careers at Georgia, I know Georgia fans don't want to hear this, they're not very good. Very unlikely. Yeah, and so you're going you're gonna to have this dynamic where, and we're assuming that Eason's going to leave. And that, that was kind of this, to me, in my opinion, Fields saying that Georgia was going to be his choice, and then he was going to sign with Georgia on Wednesday. I know he didn't officially say he's going to sign with Georgia on Wednesday, just that he was signing on Wednesday. But to me, that was, okay, that's the last straw for Jacob Beeson. He's going to be looking to play elsewhere. That's what five-star quarterbacks do. In fact, if you actually look at the five-star quarterbacks from 2013 to 2016, if Eason transfers, six of those eight five-star quarterbacks will finish their college careers at a different school than the one they signed with. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. It is. And the the only two that, that didn't were Josh Rosen and Christian Hackenberg, guys who played from the moment they stepped on campus and were deemed the starters. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of the beast with five-star quarterbacks. And is that going to be how it plays out with Fields? Because if you're Georgia, the best-case scenario, the absolute best-case scenario for you is that Jake Fromm ends up being an NFL guy and who's ready to go after his junior year. He starts for another two years, and you're sitting there 
thinking, okay, we can maybe redshirt, we can redshirt Justin Fields for his freshman year, which sounds crazy, and I know that that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but then maybe as he's maybe in his redshirt freshman year, he can kind of be a true backup, or he can get the Tua Tagovailoa um, type treatment from Nick Saban, where he's able to be put in in some situations. Um, is he able to kind of get into that role and really, you know, feel like he's contributing to the team? That way, he doesn't leave. Are you looking at a scenario where that unfolds and Jake Fromm leaves after his junior season, and then as a redshirt sophomore, Justin Fields is finally a starter as a former five-star recruit? I don't know. That might be a little bit naive to suggest that that's even a possibility in this day and age. That doesn't seem to happen uh, very much anymore. I have no idea, but. The, the conversation just got a heck of a lot more interesting in Athens, that's for sure. Yeah, going back to your previous comment, by the way, you mentioned that Josh Rosen and Christian Hackenberg actually finished where they started. Neither one of them won a thing, by the way. They both had very high highs in their college career, but Rosen never took UCLA anywhere of consequence. And pretty much the same thing with Hackenberg at Penn State. If anything, his career got worse the longer he was in Happy Valley. But, you know, that's not necessarily where we're going for this conversation. I could understand if you were talking about Fields coming in and sitting for a year and then getting ready to go. Again, I have to reference Florida State because it's my school. You know, Jameis Winston was as recruited highly as anybody for that class. He was Justin Fields for that class of 2012. He sat as a redshirt behind E.J. Manuel, the established starter, and then started as a redshirt freshman. Oh, by the way, won a Heisman Trophy and a national championship. So I could see sitting one year, sitting two for maybe the top quarterback in the country. And some people say he's the best prospect to come along in a decade. I mean, I know they always say that, but still, this is a kid you're expecting to play right away and to be really good right away. This isn't like it was 20, 30 years ago where you were expected to redshirt and you were expected to hold a clipboard for a couple of years because you had to wait your turn. And it was very difficult to play that position at this level. But now... Seven-on-seven football and high school quarterbacks are doing a lot more than they used to. These kids are ready to play, and good for them, which is why I'm sort of questioning why Justin Fields is doing this. I don't blame him. If he if he's just woke up one day and said, you know what, I want to play between the hedges, if he grew up as a kid you know, in suburban Atlanta and just always dreamed of playing in Sanford Stadium, good for him, young man. Go for it. It, it just I find it strange in today's environment. Because these kids at that level, they want to play. And I just cannot envision a scenario where he gets significant playing time with Georgia anytime soon. So we're going to sit here and we're going to break down all these things and all these factors that go into it. And the thing about, the thing about this whole scenario is if you're Georgia, this is, this is ideal. It's, it's a problem that everybody wants to have. Yes. Everybody wants a loaded quarterback room. And I know it's a dilemma and it creates a little bit of a – of a problem and sometimes you got to manage it and sometimes if you mismanage it like Nick Saban did last year you're left thinking oh my gosh what are we going to do that that stuff happens but other stuff happens too things like Jacob Eason going down in the first game of the year with an injury happens and all these unforeseen circumstances that we're not taking into the equation now because we they're unforeseen circumstances we don't know if Jake Fromm could go down tomorrow and suffer a midseason injury, or all of a sudden he is a he hits a, a sophomore funk where he, he he all of a sudden just can't complete passes and the offense isn't moving anymore. That's why you stockpile 
at the quarterback position. It is the game's most important position, and you go after these kids and say, okay, yeah, I understand that this might create a little bit of a tough scenario. We might have a battle in this room a couple years from now, but we got to be able to plan to make sure that we have a quality quarterback no matter what, in any situation, any unforeseen circumstance, and Georgia has done that. To Kirby Smart's credit, to have a quarterback room where you're potentially looking at two five-star kids and, oh, by the way, Jake Fromm, who's just leading the program potentially to its first national championship since 1980, that's the dream. I mean, that, that's the exact thing that you strive to do if you're a coach, if you're a recruiter, if you're in this business, that's what you want. Is it going to create a lot of stuff to talk about, and, is, and will it maybe be a headache at times? Absolutely. But this is a headache that you welcome because it means you're doing something right. Jake Fromm, by the way, was almost a five-star recruit himself. I believe he was 44th nationally for the class of 2017. He was knocking on the door between four and five stars. So it's not like he was just some walk-on done good. But I definitely want to comment on something you brought up. You're absolutely right. Nobody can question what Georgia is doing here. It's not like the Jake Fromm sympathizers can say, why are you giving a scholarship to this kid? We already got Jake Fromm. We're good for a while. If you're a school, you want to get as much talent, even at one position, as humanly possible. I used to worry about that with my school. I remember thinking when I was younger and didn't quite understand the way the quarterback room worked as the way I do now, I wondered, is there a such thing as too many quarterbacks? And how are you going to make them happy? And why do you want five scholarship quarterbacks on one football team, all heavily recruited, all expecting to play? Because you know what? If you got a good program and the right coach, he's going to pick the best guy. And the best guy is going to play. And even if that means two of them eventually transfer, guess what? They probably weren't good enough to start for your program. So I wouldn't worry about that. Even if a kid leaves and has success, at another program. I wouldn't worry about that. And I think you can be pretty confident that Coach Smart is going to pick the right guy. He's going to play, and you're going to do just fine. So, sure, stockpile as many highly rated quarterbacks as you want. But another thing I want to comment on, it's real easy just to say, well, look at Jake from a year ago. I don't think this is the same situation because a year ago it was real easy to be Jake Fromm and watch Georgia play and slog through a pretty disappointing 8-5 and five season and say, you know what, I heard a lot about this Jacob Eason kid and how much arm he has and just all the tools he brings to the table. I'm not that impressed. He wasn't that good. There were 12 quarterbacks with enough attempts to qualify for passer efficiency rating in the SEC a year ago. And Eason was 11th out of 12. And then the team wasn't very good. So I could be Jake Fromm and say, yes, he's a five-star kid. But again, he didn't impress me that much. And this team was 8-5. and five. If I got my chance, I think I can be better. I don't see how Justin Fields can look at the 2017 version of Georgia and say, I'm the difference. Jake Fromm is the number six rated quarterback in America, number one in the conference. 21 touchdowns, five interceptions, freshman All-American. He was incredible. He was fantastic. This Georgia team is 12-1, and one, the best Georgia team we've seen since the early 80s, has a chance to win a national championship. There is nobody looking at this Georgia team saying, yeah, they're pretty good, but they're a quarterback away. So it's not the same conversation. I don't fault Georgia at all. Stock that depth chart. I don't blame Justin Fields for going with Georgia, but I just find it to be a curious decision. That's all. And Jake Fromm, let's not forget, was an Alabama commit and decided once Kirby Smart came on board that 
he was going to flip to to Georgia. So Jake Fromm was never necessarily, even though you know he looked at that situation probably last year and thought, hey, I could start as a true freshman. I don't think he was ever like you know you don't necessarily. I know Jalen Hurts is sort of the exception to the rule. You're not supposed to go to a place like Alabama and start as a true freshman. If you do commit to a place like Alabama, you go in thinking, okay. I'm going to have competition to start every single year no matter what. So I don't think that was ever something that he was necessarily worried about. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how, how Justin Fields handles this. How is he going to handle for the first time in his life having to potentially hold on to a clipboard? And I know there are some Georgia fans who are probably thinking right now, like, dude's going to start as a true freshman. He's so much more talented than Jake Fromm. If I'm looking at Jake Fromm and the season that he just had, I'm not. I'm not making a net change. Why would I? Why would I decide? Hey, that's that's a move I need to make right now. What Kirby Smart wants is he wants his quarterbacks to compete against each other. The best competition is in-house competition. That's what guys like Urban Meyer and Nick Saban talk about constantly. If you can create that kind of culture within your own program, where guys that are crazy talented are competing against each other that's only going to help your team in the long run. So how does Justin Fields handle this dynamic and, and deal with day in, day out, knowing that there is a guy who is more established than him on the roster, and I need to say and do all the right things to be able to make the best of this situation, and if and when my time comes, I need to be ready to crush it. How is he going to handle that whole dynamic? How is Kirby Smart going to handle that quarterback room? This does come back to the head coach to a certain extent. He's handled it well so far with Jacob Easton, and Jacob Easton has said and done all the right things, despite the fact that he's a former true freshman starter who's sitting on the bench, um, who's healthy right now. So I, I trust Kirby Smart to make the right decision with all this because he's handled it well so far, and he has sort of created the perfect storm in his quarterback room. Do not underestimate the fluidity of this situation. And let's just remember where this Georgia program was right about two years ago when you make the move from Coach Richt to Coach Smart, and what was Coach Smart's first job when he got to Georgia? It was maintain the commitment of Jacob Eason because he is the most talented quarterback to potentially go to Georgia since Matthew Stafford, and he's a guy who can throw the ball through a brick wall, and he's the guy who's going to be a savior and get us away from the Grayson Lamberts and the Hudson Masons and all these mediocre guys who couldn't take our passing game somewhere, and he is going to start for three years, and then he's going to go to the NFL draft and be the number one overall pick. That was the conversation in Georgia two years ago, which seems like an eternity, but he was supposed to be the guy. And now he's going to leave your program and not one Georgia fan is going to worry about it. It's incredible how quickly these conversations change. Isn't it? And, and you know, getting back to the conversation we were having earlier about why, why the position is so important and why a guy like Fields can, can be the difference, having him on your bench, look at, look at Florida State. Let's bring it back to that once again. Do we have Florida to? State, the Florida State's season falls apart because DeAndre Francois goes down in that opener. And I know they had some other issues, and their defense maybe wasn't quite as good as we thought it was going to be. But I think that's a much, much, much different season. And maybe even Jimbo Fisher is still in Tallahassee if DeAndre Francois stays healthy. So these things happen at the quarterback position, and we don't know what the future holds for Jake Fromm. Of course, nobody predicts anybody to fall victim to an injury, but we just never know how these things are gonna how these things are gonna happen. And you just gotta have an insurance policy. And right now, few few programs in America have better insurance have a better insurance policy at the game's most important position than Georgia. 
Connor, great show as always. We won't do this again until after the 25th. So to you and yours, Merry Christmas, and we'll do this again very soon. And a Merry Christmas to you. Did we talk before about the fact that, okay, no, that was a different conversation, why a Christmas story is extremely overrated. I know that's a random thought to end the show, but I, it's overrated, right? We can agree on that? We can disagree on that, and I can tell you because I'm actually spending Christmas in Manhattan with my family, and we are specifically going to a Chinese restaurant Christmas night just as a little bit of a celebration of the Christmas story. What's wrong with you? That's okay. That we're, that's going to be an off-air debate for another time. But that a Merry Christmas to you, I guess, and I hope you enjoy the most overrated, uh, celebrating one of the most overrated traditions of all time from one of the most overrated movies of all time. Yeah, I changed my mind. Go lick a flagpole, would you? That's Connor O'Gara. <laughs> Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at Saturday JC. And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends at WDAE in Tampa, as well as our sponsors, Ticket City and Crystal. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. And be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ. And for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.